We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, welcome. This is Hampton Keithley and Bob Brandon, and we're continuing our book review of Rodney Stark's How the West Won. And today we're going to tackle... Chapter 15, Science Comes of Age. So how are you today, Bob? I'm good. I'm going to be tired in a little bit, though, Hampton. i got to go out and shovel the driveway. Oh, goodness. It's been snowing. We've had a pretty good winter up here. A lot you of know, snow. I, we have. You know, I'm not, uh, I don't really ski anymore, but, you know, I have a lot of friends that do, and they're, they're saying, man, the mountain's in fantastic condition. Well, I was more concerned with the amount of snow so that I could figure out when the river was going to blow out and miss mm -hmm. up fly fishing. Because <laughs> so living in Texas, if I wanted to go fly fishing in Colorado, I would go and check the, I would need to go check the, how much snow did you get? And well, if it's normal, uh, then, you know, the, the river would be available at this certain time and I can remember a couple of years back when we were living there, we had 200% of the normal snowfall. And oh usually, my goodness. usually the river is cleared up by 4th of July. And that year it was not cleared up until the first week of August. Oh my goodness. So. Well, it, isn't it amazing how <clears throat> integrated nature is? Yeah. You know, all that stuff is related. Oh boy. What a marvelous creation we have. And this is only the leftover beauty. That's the way Francis Schaeffer used to say it. I mean, imagine what it was like relapsarian before the fall. I just hard to imagine. Yeah. That this is just the leftover stuff. You know, I'm almost I, I often picture because uh, at Christmas time, <clears throat> you know, our business, you know, we'll, we'll go in and decorate homes for Christmas up in Beaver Creek and the other areas around the valley. And invariably, you drop a couple ornaments, right, when you're putting them on the trees. And those things are so fragile. Mm -hmm. and, and so they just shatter. <clears throat> and that's often my own mental picture of the fall. You know, here's this beautiful ornament. And then a couple seconds later, it's unrecognizable. It's just scattered into minute pieces. And uh, I think about the creation that way. But what a what a great thing to look forward to when that's all restored. And uh, not just restored, I think it'll be better. 
So hard to imagine. Hard to imagine. Let's start out, Hampton. Today we finished the book of Daniel. I wanted to read some things from um, the book of Colossians. First, I want to read Paul's prayer so we can appropriate this for ourselves. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason, we also, from the day we heard about you, have not ceased praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may live worthily of the Lord and please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good deed, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the display of all patience and steadfastness, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. What a great prayer. You don't hear hear that too often in churches, you know, like when the, the pastor stands up to pray. It doesn't exactly sound like Paul. Yeah. <clears throat> Sometimes it does. But then this this last little little section. This is chapter two, verse twenty. If you have died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, why do you submit to them as though you lived in the world? <laughs> so <laughs> just that short verse the point in the larger context i know we're anxious to get to our uh, book but the point in the larger context there in in colossians chapter 2 is don't be taken in by human philosophy and that's a good reminder as we begin this chapter today so why don't you introduce us to the chapter okay well, I'm going to read a couple, few sentences here from the introduction like we usually do. He said, Isaac Newton famously remarked, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Unfortunately, too few who quote this line realize that Newton was not only quite serious, but also quite correct. Science did not suddenly erupt in a great intellectual revolution during Newton's time. This era of superb achievements was the culmination of centuries of sustained, normal scientific progress. And then he kind of covers, you know, Occam and uh, Galileo. Yeah. Yeah. And so he says, nevertheless, the notion that a scientific revolution erupted in the 16th century is so ingrained in our intellectual culture that the historian of science, Stephen Shapin, began his study with this charming line, there was no such thing as a scientific revolution, and this is a book about it. So it seems more accurate to identify what occurred in this era as the coming of age of Western science. I have written at length on this era in three previous books, but there is little repetition in what follows, for I have discovered important new questions to address. I think that's impressive if he's written three books and he's still figuring new stuff out. I do too. What's so he mentioned in that second paragraph this phrase, intellectual culture. What's our word for that? 
The social imaginary? (laughs) (laughs) There you go. It's so ingrained in our social imaginary that there was a scientific revolution and it's completely wrong. It was it was what science always is, slow, steady progress. Right. There wasn't a revolution. Yeah. So he goes on to say, in particular, I will dispel several widely advocated but spurious claims, each of them a variation on the theme that science could arise only during the Enlightenment, in quotes, because by that point, the churches sufficiently weakened could no longer suppress science. Since this is an obvious falsehood, so too are claims derived from it. The first of these claims is that most of the great scientific stars of the time had freed themselves from the confines of supernaturalism and faith. The second is that the Protestant Reformation had freed England and many parts of the continent from the dead hand of the Catholic Church, and thereby making real scientific thinking possible or in the case of Puritanism, a moral duty. The third claim is that science arose outside the universities because they were controlled by the churches and therefore were inhospitable to new ideas. Finally, all these factors are said to have combined to explain why England was the center of it all. Overwhelming evidence falsifies each of these claims. Indeed, Christianity was essential to the rise of science, which is why science was a purely Western phenomenon. So, as usual, good, good. That's nice. You know, that's what I was going to say. You know, uh, Stark really has his strength in the, he's able to say a lot efficiently in his introductions. Yeah. Maybe we should just read. was very good. Maybe we should just read the chapter. <laughs> <laughs> well, next, yeah. I will read that last paragraph one last time because it was so good. I want people to slow down and think about this. Overwhelming evidence falsifies each of these claims. Indeed, Christianity was essential to the rise of science, which is why science was purely a Western phenomenon. Right. And then the next section is, what is science? Um, He starts off talking about Aristotle was not a scientist. He would just make up a theory and never test it. And so (laughs) he thought that hot water would freeze faster than already cool water or cold water. And so Bacon actually, Roger Bacon tested that out and proved that that was not true. So. Um, science must not be confused. Like, I'm going to read here. Science must not be confused with philosophy. Big ideas may or may not be scientific, nor must science be confused with technology. Ancient China had no science, despite knowing how to smelt iron, make firecrackers, and manufacture porcelain plates. Science is best defined as a method used in organized efforts to formulate explanations of nature, always subject to modification and correction through systematic observations. Put another way, science consists of two parts, theory and research. Scientific theories are abstract statements about how and why some portion of nature 
including human social life, fits together and works, but not all abstract statements about nature, even, even those offering explanations, qualify as scientific theories. Rather, abstract statements are scientific only if it is possible to deduce from them some definite predictions and prohibitions about what will be observed. And that's where research comes in and consists of making those observations that are relevant to the theories, empirical prohibitions, and predictions. So <clears throat> science is coming up with a theory and then testing it. Nice. You know, one one application, you know, I think last week I might have talked a little bit about the elemental chart. And uh, you can see those guys painstakingly progress over the decades, you know, with more and more precision hammering out what the elements fundamentally look like and then <clears throat> this is all to emphasize that prediction element of science how you test it you know then you can begin to predict things and when you start formulating the elements into a chart and there's gaps you know there were people saying okay we're gonna find this element that we haven't found yet but should be right here you know with these characteristics and then they would find it well, that means your theory is correct. Right, right. That's good. And, you know, one of the best places to see that, oddly enough, I know you've been postponing this, but I'm going to keep jabbing you until you finally get to doing your textual criticism seminar. So oh. imagine Westcott and Hort, you know, in the history of that field and studying the text, um, to such an extent that they said, you know, if we ever found manuscripts that predated, you know, the certain date, they would read like this. And then they found them, right? The papyri. Mm -hmm. And they read exactly like Westcott Hort said they would. That means you're right. Right. So cool. Go ahead. Sorry for the interruption. That's fine. Um, he, he did go on to say that um, science can only deal with natural material things. And um, he said there are entire realms of discourse that science is unable even to address, including such matters as the existence of God. So much then for notions that science refutes religion. Well, that's a good statement because, <clears throat> well, for a lot of reasons, but I'll just let it stand. Yeah. It's a very good statement. He concludes that whole section with, uh, it is now the consensus among historians, philosophers, and even sociologists of science that real science arose only once in Europe. In this regard, it is instructive that China, Islam, Islam, India, and ancient Greece and Rome had a highly developed alchemy, but only in Europe did alchemy develop into chemistry. I didn't realize the... I guess alchemy is more mystical. They're trying to figure out a turn. Well, I, I think so. You know what, though? It, well, you know me, so this actually won't surprise you at all. But there's there's more to alchemy than people realize. That, that that's not just some ancient. You know, they're trying to make gold out of you know rocks or something. Right. You actually, you actually can manipulate the elements at a certain level with, mm -hmm. um, with certain techniques. It's, it's interesting. I won't dive into it now, but that's a fascinating field. Yeah. He also said that other societies had 
the elaborate systems of astrology, but only in Europe did astrology lead to astronomy. There you go. So I thought that was interesting too. And then he goes through yep. this whole section on scientific stars and he lists the best 50, 52 best scientists in the 1600s. And then he gives yeah, interesting. Some, some tables to show that they were equally divided, you know, amongst the topics or studies of physics, astronomy, biology, and mathematics. And then he has another table mm -hmm. that shows that 60% were um, devout Christians. 38% were, we'll call them just normal. He called them conventional Christians, but he didn't know if they were devout mm -hmm. or not, but he knew for sure they were Christians. And mm -hmm. only one of the 52 was an atheist. So, so much for yep. the claim that scientists of the Enlightenment weren't religious. <clears throat> yeah, very nice. And I think it was kind of evenly spread, wasn't it, between Protestant and Catholics? Yeah, that's the next section. It's a Protestant revolution, question mark. Um, yeah. And yeah. I'm trying to think here. In 1938, Robert K. Merton, soon to become one of America's most influential sociologists, published a lengthy study in the history of science journal, Osiris, Science, Technology, and Society in 17th century England. Rejecting the Marxist and secularist orthodoxies of the day, Merton proposed that Protestant Puritanism, Puritanism had given birth to the scientific revolution. According to Merton, this occurred because the Puritans had reasoned and presumably they were the first Christians to do so, that since the world was God's handiwork, it was their duty to study and understand this handiwork as a means of glorifying God. The Smertons argued among Puritan intellectuals in 17th century England, science was defined as a religious calling. And he said this was an extension of Max Weber's claims about the role of the Protestant work mm -hmm. ethic. And mm -hmm. he said it's that's not true it wasn't limited to protestants and that's what you were mentioning his next chart shows that they were 50 percent protestant and 50 percent catholic yeah yeah very and good and um let's see what else he goes into some discussion about why things took off in england which I was going to skip unless you have something that you wanted. To no, I was going to, I was going to skip that as well. I was going to read this last sentence though, with that uh, before his table 14, three under a Protestant revolution question mm -hmm. mark, <clears throat> you know, he's quoting uh, that science should be welcomed as a faithful handmaid of theology. And I've always seen it that way. Right. I, I think science should be underneath the umbrella of God, not a rival to it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Go ahead. Um, he concludes that section on England, but even though England produced more scientists, the principal fact about this wonderful era of science is that it was spread across all of Western Europe and for good reason. It was the normal result of the organized pursuit of knowledge that was fundamental to Christianity. Very good. The Christian basis of science. Um, I have 
several things highlighted in here, but science arose only in Christian Europe because only medieval Europeans believed that science was possible and desirable. And the basis of their belief was their image of God and his creation. And this was dramatically asserted to a distinguished audience of scholars attending the 1925 Lowell Lectures at Harvard by the great English philosopher and mathematician Alfred North Whitehead, who explained that science developed in Europe because of the widespread faith in the possibility of science derived from medieval theology. And that's part of that handmade thing you were mentioning earlier. But mm -hmm. that blew everybody's mind. They were shocked. Because mm -hmm. he wrote some book with the, the atheist Bertrand Russell or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> so um, he said that Doreem or Dorismi is the way it looks like. But the French guy, Areem, said that God's creation was like a guy making a clock and then set uh -huh. it in motion. And so it was our job to discover the rules. Um, and he has. Yeah, that's. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, that's kind of helpful to an extent. You don't want to push that too far, but right. it's kind of helpful to an extent. Yeah, I guess the, the laws of nature kind of idea. Maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. He has a couple things here. He kind of goes through. Um, the different religions and why they weren't scientific, which is probably worth reading. But he said, many of the early scientists felt morally obliged to pursue these secrets, just as Whitehead had noted. The great British philosopher concluded his remarks by pointing out that the image images of God and creation found in the non-European faiths, especially those in Asia, are too impersonal or too irrational to have sustained science. And any particular natural occurrence might be due to the fiat of an irrational despot god or might be produced by some impersonal, inscrutable origin of things. There is not the same confidence as in the intelligible rationality of a personal being. It should be noted that given Judaism and Christianity's common roots, the Jewish conception of God is as suitable to sustaining science as is the Christian conception. But Jews were a small, scattered, and often repressed minority in Europe during this era and took no part in the rise of science. Although Jews have excelled as scientists since their emancipation in the 19th century. Um, in oh, contrast, nice. most, most religious religions outside of the Judeo-Christian tradition do not posit a creation at all. The universe is said to be eternal without beginning or purpose, never having been created. It has no creator. From this view, the universe is a supreme mystery, inconsistent, unpredictable, and perhaps arbitrary. For those holding this view, the only paths to wisdom are meditation or inspiration, there being nothing to reason about. But if the universe was created in accordance with rational rules by a perfect rational creator, then it ought to yield its secrets to reason and observation. <clears throat> Hence the scientific truism that nature is a book meant to be read. Yeah, very good. That That's a good way to say it, too. Does this, does this bother you the same way it bothers me? Whenever Christianity gets lumped in, with other um, faiths, often the term religion is used. I've never seen Christianity 
as a religion. I know we've touched on that before, probably under our core beliefs, but I, I just see it as the truth. You know, you don't find that word religion in the Bible. You, you might find like practices, you know, practices of the faith or something well, like wait that. Wait a minute, what about, but you're not gonna, what about, is it James 2? Oh, pure, pure, pure religion. religion. Is uh, yeah, a pair of orphans and widows. Yeah, we, good one. And we'll have to look at that word because I'm not sure that word means the same as we. Not that that's a bad translation of that, but mm -hmm. there's there's some subtleties in there, you know. But that well, but that me. would I'm be always, an example. That's, yeah, I'm always wanting to yeah. look the translational issues. Never, yeah, the translator's work is never done. <laughs> Every time I read, I'm like, yeah, translate it that way. Yeah. Well, let's look up that one for next time because that's an interesting one. But you understand my point, right? I don't see oh, yeah. Christianity as a religion. And well, I, I think that, I, yeah, the writers. Idea... Go ahead. Yeah, I think of religion as um, man's effort to please God or something like that. There you go. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Well, I so, it, you know, towards the end of that section. Well, and it was saying, you know, towards the end of that section, it was saying it was only because Europeans believed in God as the intelligent designer of a rational universe that they pursued the secrets of creation. That That's a good way to say it. Um, well, intelligent I design just screams out to me when, when you look at the creation. Yeah, I think this next paragraph actually... Um, his analysis of what, why China, Islam, why they don't, they, they wouldn't have science, I think is very good. Mm -hmm. he says, of course, the Chinese would have scorned such an idea as being too naive for the subtlety and complexity of the universe as they intuited it. As the esteemed Oxford historian of Chinese technology, Joseph Needham explained, as for the Greeks, many of them also regarded the universe as eternal and uncreated. Recall that Aristotle condemned the idea that the universe came into being at some point in time as unthinkable. And as seen in chapter two, the Greeks treated the cosmos as inanimate objects more generally, as living things. And as a result, they attributed many natural phenomena, such as the movement of heavenly bodies to motives, not inanimate forces. As for Islam, the orthodox conception of Allah is hostile to the scientific quest. There is no suggestion in the Quran that Allah set his creation in motion and then let it run. Rather, it is assumed that he often intrudes in the world and changes things as it pleases him. Through the centuries, therefore, many influential Muslim scholars have held that efforts to formulate natural laws are blasphemy, blasphemy, because they would seem to deny Allah's freedom to act. Thus did the Chinese, Greek, and Muslim images of God and the universe deflect scientific efforts. So I think that's important to understand. You know, it's one thing for him to say, you know, Christianity led to science, but it's helpful to understand why the others couldn't. Very good. Very helpful. Um. Anything else in there that you wanted to bring up? 
Well, just just the one I said, and that, so then you hear famous people talking about this stuff. Like Johannes Kepler stated, the chief aim of all investigations of the external world should be to discover the rational order and harmony imposed on it by God, in which He revealed to us in the language of mathematics. That's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Which do you have a working definition of mathematics, Hampton? I ask the swimmers this all the time. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm terrible. I am terrible at math. Well, I think some of that is because <clears throat> I don't think it's taught the way it should be. But if you just started with this simple definition, I think it would really help things fall into place for people learning it. Here's my definition of math. Math is reasoning about quantities. Okay. And I, I think that helps. Yeah. So, so then Robert Boyle, right? Another famous scientist, a chemist, wished the members of the Royal Society of London continued success in their laudable attempts to discover the true nature of the works of God. <clears throat> and then you have Einstein makes an interesting observation. Um, for as Albert Einstein once remarked, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. A priori, one should expect a chaotic world which cannot be grasped by any mind in any way. That is the miracle which is constantly being reinforced as our knowledge expands. So what he's talking about is if there were no rational creator, nothing would be understandable. Well, he And was yet a, at every turn. He was an evolutionist, right? Mm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. He was not an atheist. Um. Well, but, but he, his, didn't he have problems and came up with his cosmological constant, try to yes, make his theory yes. work because he didn't want to admit that there was a beginning to creation and a God? No, no, I don't think that Am was I wrong necessarily on that? his motive. No, he had. Well, you're right on the fact that he put that constant in there, but that that was more motivated. You know, I've hinted at this before, but more about the argument going on about what the ether really was at the time. And so when he put that in a number of, you know, it's easy for us to think this is more social imaginary that Einstein was like in a vacuum. You know, he was the greatest genius of his day. Einstein is clearly a genius, especially if you compare him to guys like me, but clearly a genius. But there were other phenomenal geniuses in his day. Um, the guy that worked for GE, the German guy, Steinmetz, off the charts brain wise. And Tesla was around the same time. And it, the instant that uh, Einstein put in that constant, a number of those guys said, that's not right. You know, that's not what we're seeing in that labs. That that had more to do with electricity and ether kind of stuff. But he, he was not, Einstein was not an atheist. I mean, his point was, you can see God's handiwork everywhere. It's, it's a rational universe. Well, how, how did you get that if there's not a rational creator? Mm-hmm. 
So we then starts talking about there were some conflicts between the church and science. And um, his point was that, you know, the, both Catholic and Protestant theologians were reluctant to accept the earth was not the center of the universe, but they didn't really have a whole lot of pull or sway, you know, right. or impact. Um, and then he goes into this section about Galileo and historians have tried to say that the church imprisoned and tortured him for saying that the earth moved around the sun and Stark goes into quite a bit of detail. Yeah. We well let's just read read this because just a little bit, if you'll grant me this, because it's sure. it's a good way to point out the social imaginary. So I want people to listen to two statements, one from Voltaire. This is about Galileo, and the other <laughs> did you like the word gadfly? Uh -huh. the, the Italian gadfly, Giuseppe Baretti. So I'm going to read their statements about the church and Galileo. So here's Voltaire. The great Galileo, at the age of four score, groaned away his days in the dungeons of the Inquisition because he had demonstrated by irrefutable proofs the motion of the earth. And then here's uh, Giuseppe Beretti. Added that Galileo was put to the torture for saying that the earth moved. None of those are true. That, well, what I mean by not true, he wasn't put in prison. He wasn't tortured. Yeah, there's two, right? there's two paragraphs <laughs> at the middle of this section. I'm just going to read to tell what happened. Okay. It says, 19, in 1632, Galileo published his awaited dialogue concerning the two chief world systems. Although the ostensible purpose of the book was to present an explanation of tidal phenomena, the two systems involved were Ptolemies, in which the sun circles the earth, and Copernicus's, where the earth circles the sun. The dialogue involved three speakers, two of them philosophers, and the third a layman. It was the layman, Simplicio. Oh, my nickname. <laughs> who presented the traditional views in support of Ptolemy. The name's resemblance to Simpleton was obvious to all. This allowed Galileo to exploit the traditional straw man technique to ridicule his opponents. Although Galileo did not, or although Galileo did include the Pope's suggested disclaimer, he put it in the mouth of Simplicio, thereby disowning it. The book caused an immense stir, and understandably, the Pope felt betrayed. Although Galileo never seemed to have grasped the fact and continued to blame the Jesuits and university professors for his troubles. Despite that, the Pope used his power to protect Galileo from any serious punishment, so he was not tortured. Unfortunately, Galileo's defiant action stimulated a general crackdown by the Counter-Reformation Church on intellectual freedom. Now, I think he pretty much was just had like house arrest or something like that. <clears throat> yeah, he was good friends with the Pope. Yeah. So. I mean, it says that earlier in the text. They they were close friends. He wasn't torturing Galileo. Right. But you pick that up from our culture, don't you? That he was, you mm -hmm. know, tortured for what he was saying. He wasn't. There's this point blank 
they're lying. Voltaire's lying. And I don't know if he's lying because he, you know, it serves his worldview or he's lying because he just doesn't know. But his statement is just point blank wrong. Right. His last paragraph is a fairly good conclusion. It says, of course, although Christianity was essential for the development of Western science, that dependency no longer exists. Once properly launched, science has been able to stand on its own, and the conviction that the secrets of nature will yield to prolonged inquiry is now as much a secular article of faith as it originally was Christian. The rise of an independent scientific establishment has given birth to new tensions between theology and science. If the church fathers were leery of the implications of science for theology, there now exists a militant group of atheists, only some of them actually scientists, who attack religion as superstitious nonsense and claim that science refutes the existence of God and the possibility of miracles. Amazingly, several of the most prominent of these are confident that godlike beings have evolved on distant planets. So. Yeah. Good thoughts. So, um, he also makes a, at the very end, he makes a th point that there's uh, all those are linkage between innovations in science and technology, both stemmed from and reflected the aggressive pursuit of progress by a rapidly growing, increasingly educated and achievement oriented bourgeoisie. And of course, advances in both science and technology occurred not in spite of Christianity, but because of it. Contradictory to the conventional narrative, science did not suddenly flourish once Europe cast aside religious superstitions during the so-called Enlightenment. So, yeah. And what's our phrase again for conventional narrative? <laughs> conventional narrative. Wrong again. So, yeah. yeah, what a what a good chapter to to set us up. So well, you and I, I a, yeah, go ahead. I have a my conclusion is, um, you know, he wrote this ten years ago, and I have to mm -hmm. wonder what he would say about the science of this past decade, and especially the past three years. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he did say in that Galileo section. Um, so what does the case of Galileo reveal? It surely demonstrates that powerful groups and organizations often will abuse their powers to impose their beliefs, a shortcoming certainly not limited to religious organizations. Um, I don't know that he had in mind what I'm thinking, but, you know, Peter Halligan email came out last week. It was titled Science Plus Politics Equals Political Science. Exactly. Not that. Not the study. Not political science like the course of studies at a yes. university but yes, political I, just as an edge right politicized <laughs> politicized science, science. yes that's mean. a better because i actually was you know political science minor in college but uh eisenhower's farewell speech was quoted in there and he says um I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs of the speech akin to and largely responsible for the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. In this rev revolution, research has become central. It also becomes more formalized, complex and costly. 
a steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, and or at the direction of the federal government. Today, the solitary inventor tinkering in his shop has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists in laboratories and testing fields. In the same fashion, the free university, historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research, partly because of the huge cost involved. A government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. For every old blackboard, there are now hundreds of new electronic computers. The prospect, I bolded this part, the prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment project allocation, project allocations and the power of money is ever present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery and respect as we should, we must be also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. So what was that? 1960s, early 60s? When, you know, that was his well, farewell I address. Even, I can't even comment how prescient that was. <laughs> yeah. So um yeah, he was certainly right. Governments control science now. Halligan said that in the past three years, Health and Human Services gave $600 billion each year to Yale. That's just yeah. Yale. How much yeah. did they give to all these others, you know, all the schools combined? But so the government tells them what the agenda is, and then they produce the science to support it. And if they don't, then no they more get funding. their money. Right. You know, and right. uh, I saw another email that said that there, a recent lawsuit unearthed that three three thousand pages of royalty payments to the NIH scientists from 2010 to 2021. And that and it said during that time, two thousand four hundred and seven government scientists received three hundred and twenty five million in secretive royalty payments. Exactly. There, there, I can only say that. Well, a few things. There is no telling how much money Anthony Fauci has. There's no telling. Yeah. And and he's not stealing from the government. It's because of the patents. He controls all those. Right. He gets his name on all of those patents because if you don't work for him, you're you're not getting funded. Mm-hmm. So he's automatically included in, in all those patents. So the, the potential for corruption in the scientific community is staggering. Yeah. It's staggering. There's a good, I'm going to get to another book in a second. I know you're going to let me. I got one more thing to point out. Oh, good. Oh yeah. Go ahead. ahead. Over the, you know, the past three years, we've heard the media and the government saying, follow the science. Mm -hmm. And um, they're referring to the scientists that they paid for. If it's a scientist that contradicts the, the narrative, then they get censored and Elon Musk kind of, blew the lid off of that when he took over twitter but right. the thing that i was thinking is that matthew six twenty four might apply here it says no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money i think our chapter we just read here was that you know stark showed the original scientists um that 
these scientists from the 1600s, they served God and were fulfilling the Genesis 128 mandate to subdue or take dominion over the earth. And he didn't actually use that verse, but he said they felt a moral obligation, a religious obligation, you know. Exactly right. But the thing that I felt like was that these were scientists that were in search of actual truth, maybe even yes. truth with a capital T, right? Yes. And um, in contrast to today, many of the modern scientists despise God and they serve money like Matthew 624 says, and they in turn suppress the truth. And so it right. seems to me to be sort of a, a combination of that Romans 118, suppressing the truth and loving money from Matthew 624. I think you're exactly right, Hampton. That's so, so insightful. You know, a good book about how that process works in our country is uh, the it's the title of it is called The Illusion of Evidence-Based Medicine. And it's two professors from from the West Coast, and they've been involved in these, you know, 10-year-long trials, you know, in the, the early turn of this century, and their, their conclusions at the end of it are so revealing about what happens in these big pharmaceutical companies. I'm not going to go into it at length. I'm just going to make some simple statements about it. <clears throat> you know, there's so much money involved in the pharmaceutical industry. So for instance, when, when any of those big companies, Merck, Pfizer, whoever, when they are ready to do their final testing for a product, they've already spent about a billion dollars to bring it to that point. Do you think they want the results to say, oh, you know, this really doesn't work. This is actually <laughs> harmful. They're already invested a billion bucks. They don't want no for an answer. So they only hire people to do the final testing that they know what they're going to say. And those people are made well aware. Here's the outcome we want. Here's what we're paying you to say. So they fudge the data. This is all demonstrated in the book. It's it's all, you know, highly uh, footnoted and all the data is right there. So that that's what happens in the country, right? It's it's the illusion uh, that this is real science. It's money that's driving it. And then <clears throat> here, I'm just going to read a section from a recent book. I don't know. Maybe this has been out a month or so. Horowitz and Dace are the authors. Mm -hmm. So so it's about, you know, the, the COVID revolution and all that. And so the title of their book is The Fourth Reich. And it, that's such a provocative title. And they go to some length at the beginning of the book discussing the title. Like when they originally submitted this for publication, you know, the publisher said, there's, there's no way I'm putting that title on it. You know, that's so inflammatory. And their response to the publisher was, read the introduction. And after you read the introduction, if you don't want to call it that, we'll go with whatever you say and you see the title right right the guy read the introduction he said okay i guess she got a point and so their their initial point in the book it's fascinating and in this maybe uh somehow ties in with the social imaginary i'll bet you most people don't know 
the original group, like here, here's a, for instance, the original group of people that op opposed Darwin were not the um, religious guys. It was archaeologists. And they're going, that's not what, that's not what we see, you know, the paleontologists going, that's right. not what we see in the fossil record. So in the same way, who do you suspect was the very first group of people that aligned themselves with Adolf Hitler? And it was Germany's medical community. How interesting. I'll bet you a few people would guess that. And um, so these authors, they're saying that's what's happening here. It's these government scientists that are, you know, promoting this stuff. So here, here's a, for instance, here's just some data that's verifiable, you know, about Pfizer, who a lot of this data comes from, you know, a judge ordered them to release a lot of their research they weren't going to do it, but a judge ordered them to. So it's like literally 85,000 pages of data. Well, you can go access that, you know, and read through it. But that's where they're getting this information, most of it. So let me just read this paragraph. In the pharmacovigilance plan review addendum for Comirnaty, so Comirnaty is a subdivision of Pfizer. Mm -hmm. they're, they're the ones that produce the vaccine, Comirnaty, under the umbrella of Pfizer. In this review that was that the FDA did of Pfizer is called the Pharmacovigilance Plan Review Addendum. So the FDA conceded, this is in quotes, in incidents of subclinical myocarditis and potential long-term sequelae following Comirnaty are unknown. However, it did note that a previous study on a smallpox vaccine suggested an incidence of possible subclinical myocarditis based on cardiac troponin T elevations 60 times higher than the incidence rate of the overt clinical myocarditis. Here's the bottom line. That would bring up the one in a thousand rate among young males that Pfizer acknowledged. One in a thousand get myocarditis from the vaccine, according to Pfizer. But if you add this information that the FDA said you ought to look at this also, it brings the number up one in 17. Wow. One in 17. This is known data. That's not somebody's speculation. That's real data. And so then it says, the FDA reviewers flatly stated, based on review of available data, there are known risks for myocarditis and pericarditis and an unexpected serious risk for subclinical myocarditis, which warrant PMR safety studies to assess these serious risks. They called on Pfizer-BioNTech to conduct studies, but noted that the sponsor rebuffed them. 
So the FDA said to Pfizer, hey, you need to do these safety studies because of this, because of so much heart disease that you're creating. And Pfizer said, no. Now, how do you get away with it? How do you just say no? <laughs> and then nothing happens? Right. Well, here's how. Because <clears throat> who funds the FDA? Pfizer. Pfizer. <laughs> Pfizer, more than half, literally. That that data is verifiable. So it's the fox watching the hen house. Yeah. Right? They, hey, you guys should do this study. No. And if you try to force us, we're not going to pay you anymore. So all, all that to demonstrate, <clears throat> that's what these authors think is going on in our country. A, a, revel a takeover, a fascist takeover. They've got a lot of data. Yeah. And, it, and there certainly are questions you could ask that there are no good answers to. Like they know this is killing people. Why that's verifiable. Why aren't they doing something about that? Right. Well, they, the answer to that can't be good. <laughs> well, it goes back to what Eisenhower said, you know, there's the danger of uh, from a scientific technological elite. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Thanks for letting me go into that a little bit. You bet. Well, I think that's it for today, unless you have something else. I'm good, Hampton. Okay. Well, I will talk to you next time. Thank you. Bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. <laughs>